everybody, and welcome to Enjoy the View. I'm Ari, and today on our panel, we have Tessa. Hello. And Alex. Hello. And Yulia Startsev. I am an engineer at Mozilla on the SpiderMonkey compiler for JavaScript. Okay. So she knows things, and we're going to ask her a lot about that. But just to get started, let's do a roundtable. What are everyone's thoughts on semicolons? Let's start with Tessa. I was about to say reformed, yes, but then I didn't realize if that meant used to be yes, now no, or the opposite. So no. (laughs) What? (laughs) Used to be pro, now anti. Okay. Any particular reason? The Vue CLI used to set up projects without semicolons, and I had spent a lot of time learning when they were required. And so then I spent a lot of time unlearning the habit to add them everywhere they were. That's it. Fair enough. All right, Alex. It depends on what other language I'm using at the time. (laughs) If I'm working a lot in PHP and I need to also write JavaScript at the same time, semicolons are in because that way I will consistently write code across my two code bases. If I'm writing Python, semicolons are out because I will consistently write code across my two code bases. So it really depends on context of what project I am working on currently. If I'm sending a winky face, semicolons are in. Because <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I fought with Alex about this back end, front end matching before because I've worked on a lot of like Java, JavaScript projects. And sometimes you get people that are like, the JavaScript should look like Java. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no. It's more of a like, if I'm writing Python, I need to not have semicolons in in JavaScript simply because in Python, like... It's JavaScript from now on. (laughs) In JavaScript, that is what it is called now. Thank goodness we have someone from (laughs) TSA39 here. And so we're, like, if if I'm doing that in Python and I'm putting semicolons at the end of every line, people just give me, like, really dirty looks, and so does the Python interpreter sometimes. So... It's easier for me to JavaScript is a little bit more forgiving and doesn't give me dirty looks quite the same way that Python does. It's giving them to you behind your back. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm fine with that. As long as I don't know that it's giving me dirty looks, I'm fine with it. I personally don't like to use semicolons. And my reasoning is simply that my pinky doesn't like to hit that button easily. And so I just don't make it, especially because there are options that could just put them in for me if I'm on a project where other people feel strongly that they should be included. So I just prefer not to waste my effort. <laughs> we need to get Aria's stream deck and then add a semicolon button on there. Why would... No, 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 no. That's an inside joke, <laughs> by the way. It has to do with M dashes. I have an M dash <laughs> button on my stream deck just for Tessa. <laughs> I totally understand. M dashes are really amazing. Like, this is a fantastic. It's my favorite punctuation by far. Fantastic punctuation. So good. And then there's also the N dash. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're also very good, especially when it comes to numbers. Yulia. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so now, <laughs> you're going to get me into a lot of trouble with this question because I'm uh, both uh, working on the compiler, specifically the front end of the compiler, more often than the back end. And I'll explain what that means when we talk about compilers. But I'm also uh, a Mozilla's representative to the TC39. So TC39 has definitely gotten in trouble for mentioning semicolons in the past. And I will acknowledge that that has been the case. And there's uh, two reasons why this is a contentious topic. I um, don't have that much of an opinion for how people write their code. JavaScript has the ability for you to omit the semicolon. And that is something that's consistent in the language up until now. We haven't changed that. You can write your code as you wish. And that's important. But from the perspective of someone who writes the parser that has to deal with this code... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is very painful, actually, <laughs> also for specifying new features um, when, when we're trying to come up with a new uh, way to express something in JavaScript. And we have to deal with the fact that uh, we new lines are not meaningful in JavaScript. But let's talk about, like, for example, Python. In Python, new lines are meaningful. In JavaScript, we don't have new lines. The only meaningful way for separating an expression really is with a semicolon. So we have something called automatic semicolon insertion. Which is when we, so imagine you're a happy little parser, parsing a happy little tree, and uh, or parsing a string into a happy little tree, and you come across <laughs> a parse error. You have to ask yourself, 
is this truly a parse error? Or should I try inserting a semicolon here, reparsing the whole thing and see if it still throws, <laughs> which is literally how parsers work <laughs> with automatic semicolon insertion. So it's uh, we end up doing two parses whenever um, we run into an ambiguous expression that does not have a semicolon. So this is an interesting fact to know as a JavaScript developer uh, who may choose to omit or add the semicolon because it does have very minor performance characteristics that may, uh, that may come along, but they're very minor. Parsers are really, really fast. It also has an impact on how we specify the language. So let's say you want to use like a new kind of keyword or something where let's say you want to take the, the new keyword and put it at the end of the sentence and have that mean something. Or maybe let's say you want to put uh, async at the weight of something, like, like some, something like this. Because of how the parser works, it will actually treat the next line as being part of that same expression. So if there's a statement that comes on the next line that can be awaited or can be instantiated as a new constructor, that will actually parse for the parsers. So in the, uh, when we're specifying things in the language, we actually have to or like there's other problems with new lines and everything. Uh, we have ways of specifying in the language like this cannot have a new line in order for this expression to be valid or this needs to do something. I mixed it up a little bit. It's the new line terminator that I was trying to explain and I got it backwards. So basically uh, you can't split expressions with a new line because of how we do, um, of how we need to do semicolon insertion, which is a very interesting problem and one that we're not likely to change anytime soon because that would be a huge web compatibility risk. Yeah, that sounds like a hot mess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like staring into the abyss. <laughs> yeah, we've heard that the whole point is don't break the internet. <laughs> yeah. I can tell you a funny story about my first day on TC39. Oh, yes, please. So I joined, oh, I forget the year, but does everybody remember Smooshgate? Yes. Yes. So Smooshgate, was my first meeting, like just after Smooshgate had happened. <laughs> Everyone was talking about Smooshgate and I was like, what is going on here? Oh, wow. But it was really interesting. So for anyone who's not familiar with what Smooshgate is, um, uh, we had a proposal, again, we we're talking about web compatibility. We had a proposal for introducing array.flatten and array.flatmap. Uh, flatten map, I think was the original name. But um, because JavaScript is so extensible, that you can extend it in ways that will make it not web compatible for engines to add new things. Uh, this was the case with MooTools. I can get into the details of it, but it's really uh, nitty gritties. Um, anyway, there, there was a case with one library. They extended the language in a certain way that made it impossible for the designers of the language to use that name. So we had to change the name and the first name that the champion who was exhausted because we actually run into this problem a lot was exhausted by seeing this problem all the all the time so he made a joke saying that we should rename it to smoosh and uh the internet got very angry about this he even put a really nice gif of three bunnies smooshing their heads together oh. i thought it was really cute but people were really mad and it actually makes sense that people were really mad because you know javascript is the tool of the trade like uh, i i imagine most of the people listening to this uh, uh, listening to this will be JavaScript developers working professionally. Smoosh, you know, when we pick a name for uh, something that's a new language feature, we have to consider, like, is this something that people from many different cultures can understand? Is this something that developers will recognize if they're coming from other environments? You know, all these kind of questions. And uh, our sense of humor doesn't necessarily translate to a global population. So making a joke can land really, really poorly, which is what happened here. I think Evan may have even tweeted, like, I didn't know that the word smoosh existed until today when, like, that all was happening. Yeah. So, yeah. Your story reminds me of um, a friend at Square told me the story of, I, I feel like their name is Cube or something now, but he was explaining to me how they came up with the name Square, which was, like, Jack wanted to name the company something to do with squirrels or something like that kind of like the squirrel version of Twitter and nobody was having it. And he got really depressed and irritated. And he was like, fine, then let's just call it square. Cause he was trying to think of the most boring name he could come up with. And everybody was like, Oh, I really like that. <laughs> I do like the word smoosh. 
I really like the word smoosh. I think it's a fantastic word. So people might not be aware, but in SpiderMonkey, all of the components of SpiderMonkey are named. So we have IonMonkey, which is our uh, optimizing JIT. We have, like we had Monkey, which is now retired, and a bunch of other monkeys. And we have no name for the front end, the parser. So I managed to convince my team, we were rewriting the parser, and I managed to convince my team to name it SmooshMonkey. So the official name for the rewrite of the parser is (laughs) SmooshMonkey. And there's there's actually a bit of, so there's a bit of a joke in there as well. so there's a thing that can happen when you design programming languages, which is called a reduce-reduce conflict, where, uh, you know, when you're parsing a, a string and you're trying to say, this is what that string means, like you've got the string and you want to tell somebody what it means, you're reducing that expression to its meaning, basically, you can think about it that way. And the problem is when you can reduce in two different ways. So that's a reduce-reduce conflict. And uh, we changed all of the naming around the stuff about parsers into calling it a smoosh-smoosh conflict. And it was smoosh monkey, and it was great, and we never finished it, and I'm so sad about it. It was a very fun project. As has been mentioned, you are on TC39, and we want to talk about maybe some of the new things that are, that maybe are coming to JavaScript or have just been introduced. Um, so... Mm-hmm. Let's talk about immutability. What is immutability? So immutability is, imagine you have a piece of data that you want to operate on. And let's say, um, let's say that it's like just a string of numbers and you want to multiply them by two. Um, A lot of programmers, if you're coming from a mutable language like JavaScript, so the JavaScript array function is mutable, not function, but um, array data structure is mutable and uh, you could for example iterate over all of the elements and like multiply them uh, and return that as a modified array or in fact a lot of the array methods are mutable methods so for example i believe array sort yeah array sort is a mutable uh, function this is great for performance and lots of other things but it also makes other types of things difficult. For example, tracking history of how an object changed over time. So immutability is really great for that. Also, being certain that the thing that you're holding onto is what you think it is. Uh, for example, if somebody else goes and changes that data structure later, but you actually wanted that original data, then you can still use uh, your copy and then everybody else is just iterating on their stuff. Uh, it's useful for them. Can't tell you how many times I've done that to myself. It's a, yeah, it's a common problem. <laughs> yep. They're basically forking off your array. Yeah. So uh, immutability, um, uh, forking off your array is actually a really great way to think about it because immutability is very expensive. Um, if you implement it in a naive way, what happens is you end up duplicating the same data over and over again. And you can imagine how, how quickly that would end up being very large. But if you're only changing one element in that array, then why not just keep everything the same except for that one element? This is something called structural sharing. And in order to implement immutability efficiently, you need some form of structural sharing. And that is precisely what a new proposal in TC39 is doing. It's called records and tuples. So it introduces two new data structures. One of them is called records. The other one is called tuples. Records are... Uh, map-like or object-like, dictionary-like, whatever your background is, uh, type objects. And uh, tuples uh, more closely resemble arrays. So those are the two new data structures. It's a very exciting proposal. And we have it already implemented in Firefox. Oh. So nobody listening could see that Alex's face got so excited at the mention of records and tuples. I was a little worried there was going to be a heart attack involved. Okay, so, but, all right, so here's my question. With the tuple, uh, I know currently with, like, maps and sets in JavaScript, you can make a object be the key, but it's the reference that it's tracking, so you can't just recreate the object and then use it as the key. With the tuple, or with the record, would you be able to say, okay, cool, given this tuple literal, where it's you're defining it there as the lookup, rather than using a reference to something, would it then be able to look up that tuple? I'm so glad you asked. 
this is a great question. Um, also, I should say the work we have in Firefox is like, you know, on a branch, like it's not uh, exposed to the public yet. That still needs some time. Uh, so nobody get too excited about using it yet. But records and tuples are unlike objects and arrays. They are primitives. So they are not um, uh, equality by reference, but they are equality by value. So precisely what you just asked, that is the case. And we are already designing new features around this fact. Um, one that actually just got to stage three yesterday at TC39. So in other words, the equality comparison is more like what I would get from comparing two strings or something like that. Exactly. Gotcha. The thing that always bothered me about tuples is like, it sounds like it should be two. So I feel like it should just be a thing of two. And then if it's three, then you have to call it a thruple. But... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, to be completely honest, that was uh, when I first learned about the concept of tuples. I was like, that sounds like it should be two things. Why are there like 10 things in here? Yeah. I also just think of Tupperware. I'm sorry. (laughs) Gonna be real honest. Like, that's where my mind goes. But I mean, I guess like you could like it's a container. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking right now. So uh, for practical purposes, for people who are listening, a great place to use something like this is if you are tracking a grid of things and you want to be able to look up what things, what grid spaces have things in them, instead of storing like a two-dimensional array where you have an array with arrays in it, you can instead store a one-dimensional map where you have a your key be the uh, coordinates of the position in a grid. And so now, rather than having to go and make a nested for loop to iterate over everything to find the thing that you want or check each spot, you have, as your list of keys, the set of things that are there and available to you. Um, Previously, I have done this trick by just making a string that is comma separated so there you go problem solved but like it would be fantastic if i didn't have to parse that string to get the coordinates out of it i feel like i need you to add a visual to the show notes because i got lost completely i will i will add a a visual to the show notes it makes tracking an infinite or an infinite grid uh super easy if you do it this way because that's a thing that normal people track all the time alex yeah, really typical example. <laughs> I'm just saying, if you are implementing Conway's game of, if you are implementing Conway's game of life, it is technically on an infinite grid, and this is the way to do it. Of course, you've done that. <laughs> oh, by infinite, you mean like it wraps around? No, by I mean it extends from infinity to infinity. So like zero zero goes out to infinity positive, and then out to infinity negative, and it never wraps around. I feel like every Conway's game of life I've seen has been like on a hundred by hundred grid. Right, because, I mean, you can do it on a 100 by 100 grid, but, like, there are massive wins. That's how we know that Conway's Game of Life is Turing complete, is because you can implement Conway's Game of Life in Conway's Game of Life. You're breaking my brain, nerd. Yeah, people, (laughs) there are some bigger nerds than I am right out there, Uh, so. Are you sure? (laughs) This makes me wonder, like, what implications, if any, this will have for the future of you, because, like, um, the problem with view two was tracking all of the mutable methods, right? And like wrapping array.push and array.pop so that uh, the reactivity system could detect when you made a change to the array versus like if you just reassign an array uh, or tried to use immutable methods, basically it didn't know what was going on. And then with view three, they got around that with proxies. So I wonder if like the next version of view, if we have records and tuples if that will change the way that it works behind the scenes so there might also be more good stuff that's coming up in the upcoming version of javascript because uh this is a problem that the records and tuples champions we call them champions the people who move a proposal through the process that we have at tc39 they realized that you know it would be nice if array had immutable versions of pushing and popping so we have a proposal called uh, array change by copy and it's, uh, it allows you to do uh, pushed and popped rather than push and popped, pop. So like ED, past, like past tense. And it gives you a new array with those items. Oh, that's nice. 
rather than changing the underlying array. So you would be able to more easily um, write your array stuff as though it was immutable, even though it isn't immutable. So instead of returning whatever the element that was pushed or popped, it returns the remaining array as a, a new reference? Oh, that's awesome. You know, we can finally get rid of the spread operator. I cannot tell you the number of times where like that messed me up because I'm thinking, oh, it returns the array. No, it returns what you took out of the array. <laughs> there is one problem. I think that pushed and popped got dropped actually because I complained about it. I can tell you why I complained about it. <laughs> um, so the, uh, the ones that uh, have been added are reversed, sorted, and spliced. Oh, spliced would be super useful. <laughs> So I did, I did, I actually complained about pushed and popped. Was there a reason? Yes. Uh, the reason was, um, so I, when I go to TC39, I represent the implementer's perspective. And uh, when we have to add a lot of methods to the array object, they can become really costly. In addition, um, the problem we had with Smooshgate exists, like, continuously on the array prototype. So it's very difficult to actually add anything to array prototype and know that it can land and it won't be web incompatible. So we tried to reduce the scope only to the most critical methods. Pushed and popped can be done with slice, I believe. That makes sense. Yeah, I feel like slice and, and splice was always a tricky one. So if we also have sliced, I feel like maybe it would be hard to, to remember which is which is which. I don't know. I can tell you how I remember. So a slice, like you're slicing off a slice of meat or something like that, you know, essentially they look the same. Or like a slice of cheese. They all look the same. It's from the same block of cheese. And splice, it's like gene splicing. That's how I remember it. Uh, because you're putting something in the middle of the gene? Mm -hmm. Or you can take out stuff too with it. Yeah, all I remember is uh, I was taking a practice JavaScript test and... Uh... I was trying to do something with string manipulation and I didn't know there was splice and slice and neither did the person that was helping me out because I had just started learning JavaScript. Oh no. I went to the bathroom and I came back, but there were glass doors. So I walked into the glass door and got a concussion and still don't remember the difference between the two. Oh no. Yeah. Um, but this makes me curious, like how do you come up with the names for the new methods? And like, how do you test out that they're sticky enough or like that they work well semantically? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. So um, we're trying to introduce a formal process, uh, which is something that I've been trying for a couple of years. Oftentimes, we uh, first of all, we research what other languages do to see uh, if we can align with other languages, because transferability of skills across programming languages is really nice. Uh, so that's one place where we look at names. Another place we look at names is uh, what, well, actually, even before that, what do we have in the JavaScript programming language that is similar? And are we following a particular rule here? We try to make sure that we're careful about not, we, we don't do this perfectly. There are cases where we haven't followed a specific rule to apply things uh, normally, but uh, this is something that we ought to do uh, and we try to do. Also within the web platform, we try to be consistent with naming there. If there is a convention that's already been set by the web platform, we'll follow it. You know, failing all of those, which does happen, um, then the um, champion usually, or the author, we've, there are two different roles, champion and author. Um, they will try to find a way to determine the best name. And I can give you a couple of examples of tricky names that we've had to do. Usually, we try to be precise. But, you know, sometimes you just have to go and reach out for something. The most spectacular case at the moment of something being added to the language with, with just a great name that would work in a fantasy novel is Shadow Realms. I saw that and I was like, what even is that? <laughs> also, just like realms in general, it's, it's such a great name for something. So uh, that's an example of like, we just don't know what to, what to name this and it's really hard to name this. That's definitely what I thought of when I first learned about Shadow Dom. I was like, this sounds like some dark magic sh Oh, yeah, yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> also, you may recall Global This was a really tricky naming case. How do we name something that is Global This? Because this is, you know, not exactly everybody's favorite feature of JavaScript. It's difficult to learn. It's difficult to work with. 
Um, and we ended up naming something Global This. So how do you explain that to learners? That's also a question we have. Um, so we actually have subcommittees that report back into the committee that focus on different questions. One of them is talking specifically to educators to understand how do we teach JavaScript features to uh, JavaScript developers? Are they beginners or mid-level or senior level developers? How do they learn? We have another group that also reports back into the committee, which is the research group. And we look at how do we apply research techniques from, for example, HCI into looking at how we design the language so that it is understandable and intuitive for developers. HCI meaning human-computer interaction, right? Exactly. I remember not personally not finding this that complex to understand, but feeling really frustrated because teachers kept on insisting that it was really hard to understand. And I was like, I feel like if you just went on with the content instead of keep on telling me how hard it is, my life would be a lot easier. It was jQuery. I will say it could bite you a lot in a lot more nuanced ways. I remember I spent like an entire day trying to debug um, an Ajax request when, as it turns out, uh, the context of this was not what I was expecting it to be. And you could specify the exact context of this. And fortunately, my instructor finally remembered listening to a podcast sometime where they talked about that. And she was like, maybe let's try that. And sure enough. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I think I was told like, oh, don't worry about jQuery. I'll never use it. And then my first job was a jQuery job. Yeah, it's really amazing. A lot of the, run- a lot of the web runs on jQuery. Yeah. Um, it is a really important library. Someone I was talking to recently said, they were talking to someone who, but see, I completely can't remember where this was. Was it on the show? Someone was trying to like implement jQuery mobile CSS into a view app and was like, why is it not working uh, this year in the summer? <laughs> I was like, I didn't even know there was such a thing as jQuery mobile CSS. Alex is nodding. He's a big fan of jQuery mobile CSS. He's nodding harder. Just in the other <laughs> direction. <laughs> um, next, do we want to talk about pattern matching? Oh, yeah. Uh, pattern matching is a proposal I am quite excited about. Switch and case statements are very interesting in JavaScript. And by interesting, I mean broken. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, for example, the fact that you can bind a variable in one case statement and it, it will actually be valid in like another case statement, um, if, uh, which is a little weird. Um, the fall through is not entirely understandable to developers. I think it's not explicit. I think that's a place where people might end up making mistakes if you miss a break statement or something like this and various other issues with switch in case. Um, uh, so uh, people might not be familiar with this, but we actually deprecate or discourage the use of certain features in JavaScript. Uh, one of the most famous examples is the with statement, which has been deprecated for many, many years. With allows you to take an object that you've defined and uh, treat it as though it was part of your global scope, which can be really, really weird. can uh, result in some uh, behavior that you weren't expecting if you can't keep... Like, you know, when you're designing a programming language, you have to think about how much do people have to keep in their mind? Like, what's the cognitive load that they need to take on in order to solve a problem? And there are ways that you can measure what the cognitive load is when a person is completing a certain task. With is not great for that because you need to memorize what's in your scope as it's running. Uh, So we've deprecated that. And we're planning for similar reasons to try and do the same thing to the switch statement because it is difficult for developers to use. And the solution to that is the pattern matching proposal. There are, this is a very popular proposal. I'm one of the champions on that, um, but there are like six other champions. I don't think we've ever had a proposal with so many champions. Oh. I should probably talk about the process a little bit at TC39. Yes. So, um, you know, you folks uh, or anybody listening to this podcast can actually interact with the TC39 process. We have a dedicated type of proposal which you can submit. It's called a stage zero proposal. 
uh, a like it's an early concept, a way to show a problem. The purpose of stage zero is to basically demonstrate, here's the motivation for changing this thing. Here's how I propose we change it. Then that goes through a series of steps. Stage one is the committee has heard it and has decided we haven't tried to solve this problem in this way before, and it's not entirely a bad idea. So go ahead and work on it some more. We try, you know, if you come to the committee and you say something that would break the web platform, we'll send you back and be like, you should probably rethink that or reconsider it. Um, or if you're trying to solve a problem that isn't very well motivated, like there's no use for it by developers, then we will also say, think about that again. Like, uh, is that really necessary? Can you show us a clear motivation for why this should be implemented in every single browser and add that extra weight to every developer working on the JavaScript platform and the web platform? So that's what stage one means. Stage two means, uh, okay, we're happy with the motivation and we're happy with the basic shape of the problem, the basic shape of the solution. So uh, we are going to go ahead with that and try to bring it to maturity during stage two. So that's when we write the specification text. Uh, we try to do any kind of checking for problems that we might expect with naming, with logic of the feature, et cetera, et cetera. Once the feature reaches stage three, which is meaning that it's mature enough for implementers to go ahead and put it into their code bases, then it's very difficult to change fundamental aspects of the feature within stage three. That's why you'll see uh, things like you might have a favorite proposal and it's been stuck in stage two for two or three years. The reason for that is once we cross the barrier into stage three, it's not only uh, it, it is the most expensive point that we reach because that is um, implementation time that's shipping, that's testing on the wide open web, all that kind of stuff. Um, and if we need to roll back those changes, it has to be for a really, really good reason. So we don't want to prematurely move into stage three. Stage four is complete. Uh, that means it is in the specification and will be released the following year as part of the specification for that year. We release a, a yearly cadence. So that's what it's uh, all about. Uh, and then we've got this really great proposal called pattern matching. And in my dream world, pattern matching will be as universal a tool in JavaScript as it is in the Rust world. And many of its design features are um, inspired by what Rust does with pattern matching. So your traditional case statement will take a, uh, a type, a, usually a primitive type like a string, or maybe it's... I don't know, maybe it's a Boolean. I don't know if anybody would do that or numbers or like whatever. And it would check, uh, it would check um, if that value matches a certain case statement and then it would do some logic. The um, pattern matching proposal will allow you to destructure objects and look inside of the objects and see if they are matching the pattern that you're looking for. And then if it doesn't match that, then you can go to the next statement and see if that matches. And inside of those, you can do the logic that you want to. We are also thinking forward into the future around other proposals that are coming down the pipeline. For example, do expressions are being considered how they would work with this new pattern matching uh, syntax and uh, destructuring patterns and everything. I think it's very exciting. It's very, very powerful which makes it a little scary because um, using an overpowered tool for something that doesn't need that level of power can um, lead you to making mistakes that you wouldn't make with a less powerful tool. Uh, and it makes it, you know, there's other, there's other problems with using an overpowered tool for something, but I do think that this is well-motivated and I'm really looking forward to it. So admittedly, as a fan of, of switch statements, but I would never force anyone else to use them, uh, I'm curious why deprecate instead of just having two different options. You can, uh, you can of course, continue to use switch. The issues with switch are that it's um, all of its functionality will be possible with pattern matching. And switch is error prone. That's the other issue. The reason why we are re we're looking at switch kind of with a bit of a side eye is because it's so error prone. And uh, we might have done things better there. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is something that we do very rarely. Like we will very rarely do something like this, but with the switch statement, we're like, eh, maybe we should have done that differently. But it also adds a really new, um, what's the word? Uh, new value to the language of things that we couldn't do before, like genuinely new stuff, new, new expressiveness that you didn't have before. Um, so you can certainly continue to use the switch statement. 
uh, I would be really interested in your experience with pattern matching to see if it's missing something that you enjoyed from the switch statement. I hope it would encompass everything that you enjoyed about the switch statement in this new proposal. Yeah, I'm definitely excited to try it. I mean, I generally use switch when I when I want fall through. Um, so I'm, I'm imagining that's something I can do with pattern matching. Interesting. Well, I just, I like thinking about the cascade. It's fun. We do have fall through. Well, it's not quite fall through as you have in the switch statement where you can have first something happen and then it like collides, like, you know, uh, like an accordion uh, collapses down into the other switch statements as yeah. it falls through. Um, so uh, I think that this isn't something that we're going to implement. Like you would have to make it an explicit match. Um, but um, for example, um, you won't have the problem with the binding of variables in the different case statements uh, leaking into the other case statements. So that would be fixed. Why is this like its own feature instead of just uh, leaving us all to implement it via like a bunch of if statements or something? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, it would be very difficult to read if you implemented something like this through if statements. But that is a great question. That's why I like switch statements. Yeah. Is because they're prettier than using a bunch of if else. That is definitely part of the motivation. Um, though uh, pattern matching can get very uh, full of knots. Like you can you can write very ugly pattern matching. That's possible. I've seen it. I've looked at it and been like, why are we doing this? Uh, but for the most part, it does look, it does resemble a switch statement quite a lot. So you can still use it. Um, it takes away the potential of making mistakes, which is what we're hoping for. But yes, you can, in fact, do everything that you can do. The logic that you can implement with a pattern matching statement, you can do right now in JavaScript. It is not new fundamental functionality. That's a different class of proposal. It's interesting that JavaScript is uh, taking inspiration from Rust, because my understanding is Rust also takes a lot of inspiration from JavaScript, so it's like kind of a fun cycle there. One thing I'd be really interested in at some point doing is sort of a look at... Uh, so I don't know if you're familiar with uh, anything from linguistics, but there's this concept of linguistic drift when uh, from different like natural languages, certain things move across to another language. And I'm curious to take a look at how that happens in programming languages because the, it's almost like we have certain eras in programming language design where things just sort of come into all of the major languages and then maybe they phase out, maybe they stay. I think it's actually quite interesting. Yeah, I would still love to personally try a programming language that's not in English because I feel frustrated that every single one depends on English and I want to know what the experience is like to have to learn one a language that maybe I don't know or maybe don't know well. I mean, I can totally <laughs> take the bit there because there is a... there. So this is an, in, uh, an interesting question among academics. There is a... Uh, academic conference that held its first edition this year called Pilates, which is programming in languages other than English. Um, and it's, uh, the keynote speaker was talking about why it's difficult to design a programming language in something other than English. And he showed how our models for specifying languages, so we have these things called grammars, they uh, require that you, they, they make it very difficult and all of the tooling around it and also the primitives that we use like numbers and how, uh, how um, we parse strings uh, makes it difficult to write a language that's not left to right. So if you're writing a right to left language, you suddenly need to reconsider how all of those tools work. So you can't use very many of the base tools that are used by uh, programming language designers right now. So there, it's really a challenge. Speaking of tools programmers find useful and things that are deprecated, I was always curious why Caller and Kali got deprecated, because I really liked those. Um, can you remind me about Caller and Kali? It's like when you have a function and it's causing some kind of problem where you don't know where it's getting called from, like, why did this run now? Then you could do, like, function.caller and see who called it. Uh. Did we deprecate this or, hmm, maybe we did. Yeah, every time I get a, a warning or I have to turn off strict mode. Ah, uh, yes, we did. <laughs> I, I assumed maybe it was something to do with difficulty parsing, but. We did it. We did remove this. Um, I That is before my time. I don't okay. know the answer to that. Well, uh, speaking of timelines, on the very recent timeline, 
uh, a particular proposal just made it into stage three. Um, so let's talk about Array Group Buy. Yeah, Array Group Buy uh, is a nice little proposal. Um, uh, before I, uh, I can talk a lot, so I want to make sure I answer any specific questions you have, um, if you have any. Otherwise, I can just talk about Array Group Buy. Uh, I guess, yeah, like first, what is it? <laughs> array group by um so imagine you have a basket that has eggs and cheese in it and you want to categorize your eggs and cheese you would use array group by and give it a uh, for every egg you would say okay this is in category a egg and for every cheese you'd be like this is in category cheese so it allows you to partition um arrays into separate arrays that you can then go and operate on and you get back an object with the tag or the label egg and the label cheese and two separate arrays for those two things. Um, there are two parts to this proposal. One of them is uh, group by, which I just described. And then the other one is group by map, which instead returns a map instead of an object. Now, we spoke at the beginning of this discussion about immutable data structures. And we talked about how we've got these great new primitives that are records and tuples. And the reason we designed array group by map was so that you could go ahead and group by a certain tuple uh, just automatically and have it grouped by that. That's not something you can do with, uh, with uh, an object. So uh, that was us thinking forward, like this is, a, this is a feature that would be nice to have once we have records and tuples. And that's pretty much the gist of it. Um, yeah, that's the proposal. And the champion there is uh, Justin Ridgewell. And um, it's quite interesting how we ended up on this proposal. If you want to yes, absolutely. You want to elaborate on why it's interesting? So um, <laughs> Justin had come to committee with a different proposal. He did not come to committee with group by. He came to com committee uh, saying um, that we have a usability issue with array.filter and that he can never remember if you're filtering in items or you're fil filtering them out, like which direction does the Boolean and filter work? So um, we use the precedent set by other languages and the way that our filter works is the same as in other, every other um, language. So, um, oh God, now I can't remember. I think it's so uh, we filter, the, the Boolean is filtering things in. So you get everything that is like as the, as the um, uh, checking function. He wanted to introduce a new function called filter out, which uh, the committee was like, yeah, okay, so we see that uh, this is something that might be a usability issue, but this usability issue, the fact that you have to go and look it up on MDN every time, isn't significant enough for us to add this alias that is essentially an inversion of filter. Can we think about something else? So this was an example of the committee being of something bouncing off the committee and being like, maybe we should think about this again. So Justin came back with, okay, well, what if we had something where we could group things? So you could have the stuff that was rejected and the stuff that was accepted into piles. And everyone was like, yeah, actually, that's not something you can do easily in the programming language right now. Why don't we do that? That sounds really great. So he went and he started on that proposal. So in JavaScript, we have two different types of arrays. We've got um, your classic arrays and you've got typed arrays. And he wrote the proposal for both of those. Once he finished it, he realized, oh, in fact, typed arrays don't make any sense with this feature. I can't see anybody using it. So rather than doing the consistent thing, which is doing it even though we don't have a clear use case, we removed that. So um, this is just like, you know, evolution of the proposal. And finally, he realized, well, we've got this records and tuples proposal, and maps can be really, really useful with records and tuples. Why don't we do a group by two map, which is the other uh, partner uh, part of this proposal, the partner method. Um, so now we've got group by two map, which allows you to do the map use case. And that's the full evolution. We, in fact, made a name change yesterday evening um, to group by two map from group by map, again, uh, because of naming collision thing, not naming collisions. In this case, it was a readability issue, which I can get into. Um, but yeah, that's group by map and group by. What was the readability issue? So uh, when you hear group by map, what do you think? Do you think that you are grouping things into a map or do you think that you're getting a map and you're grouping things by that map? Yes, between the two, the latter. 
that's the problem because what it does is the former. So we renamed it from group by map into group by to map. Uh, the reason being group by is uh, has a precedent in other programming languages. So this is a transferable skill between programming languages. It works the same. Uh, and we just added to map because we have a convention within JavaScript of things like to string and to yada, yada, yada. That was our thinking. It's not perfect, but that's where we are right now. That totally makes sense. <laughs> like, oh, I get it now. Sorry, y'all sent me on a very deep rabbit hole of Google links. So Surprising and off-brand. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I remember we were talking earlier about things that we wish we could add to JavaScript or things that we hate in JavaScript. Yeah, I think Alex has... Um... Some no. thoughts on a particular yeah, yeah. okay, thing. so yeah, all right, y'all all get right. ready. So <laughs> dates in JavaScript. I that's it. I that's all I Our have heart. to say is that no, no. Uh, so specifically, specifically, we we, we mentioned this or we talked about this before, but dates in JavaScript. If you create a new date, right? It's it's the current time, and you have these lovely methods on it. We have get day, I think, which is it allows us to get the current day, and that gives you a number between 1 and 31. We can do get year, and it gives you the year as a number, right? So that's, that's great. So we have, and then you do get month, which gives you a zero indexed value of the month. And so January is zero, February is one, et cetera, et cetera, which if you aren't expecting it, means that you have... New Year's on the first of the zeroth month. <laughs> <laughs> this also applies, though, to constructing new dates if you're just passing in number values as the arguments, which I did not realize at first when I was trying to make some fake data. So everything was a month off. So I'm like, oh, so my fake data shows future dates. That's fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um yeah, so date parse, uh, am I right, uh, is a bug that we've had in in the compiler for a really long time, six years. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, so d- date. Date is uh, broken um, in many more ways than one. So we have, again, a new proposal, a very large one. It's called temporal. There is a polyfill for it that you can go ahead and start playing around with. Uh, the proposal is currently in stage three. Their implementation started on various browsers. It's it's quite substantial. Like it covers pretty much anything you can imagine doing with dates and times. Basically, someone, uh, specifically Maggie Pint and um, one other person whose name is escaping me right now, uh, came to the committee and said this is atrociously broken. I think this was more than four years ago that she came, and they've been working on it for like four years. And uh, it's getting there. And my suggestion would be as soon as you can switch to using temporal instead of date objects for everything, because it covers everything that date objects can do. But yeah, um, things like date parse are not standard. There are various aspects of the date constructor that just do not work consistently across uh, different browser engines which can lead to a lot of headaches, uh, not only for developers, but also for the browsers, because we try to do our best to be compatible with one another. And we like the complexity of date objects is just so great that we just haven't found a common operating model for date.pars. Um, yeah, I, I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> That's all I can say. <laughs> so it sounds like because the, the new correction will be under temporal instead of the old method then we don't have to worry about old javascript breaking is that right yes uh because we can't fix it because if we fix it it will break the web right yeah are there times where you are willing to break the web yes that's a great question actually uh we have uh created backwards incompatible changes if they were safe uh, an example, um, and I forget the exact details of this. This is ages ago. Um, I, I'm also trying to do it right now. Uh, an example was how eval works, direct eval. We um, 
changed it in a backwards incompatible way to make JIT compilation possible. JIT compilation is just-in-time compilation, which is what was a major advance in the browser wars when browsers were competing to be the fastest, best thing. So uh, we did do a backwards incompatible change there. I'm currently championing a backwards incompatible change to something called symbol species, um, which if you look it up on MDN, it's called a well-known symbol, but I suspect no one's ever heard of it. Please don't use it. <laughs> Please don't <laughs> use it. Um, because uh, it's, um, it is the source of a lot of security bugs in JavaScript engines, and they tend to be really, really bad ones. Uh, what it does is, you know how when you extend an object uh, from another object, uh, you have that new instance of the object. Like, let's say you have my foo extending my bar, you'll have my foo. But you can use symbol species to override the methods from my foo to return a my bar class. And that will stay. That'll still be there. You'll still be able to override like imagine you have like my array and it extends array okay so that's where the problem is the problem is that you can also do this for built-in classes uh, built-ins are the classes that the javascript engine ships with and the number of checks that we need to do in the engine to make this behavior work correctly is extremely error prone and that's why i want to remove it because well first of all it slows things down uh, in fact, none of the browsers optimize this code. So anything that touches symbol species, if you do this re, uh, if you if you change the underlying object when you're returning it, we just don't try to optimize it, like uh, because it, it's very very messy. So I'm trying to remove that. That's backwards incompatible. It might not work. Uh, there have already been complaints that it's probably not possible, but we're going to see. We've broken it down into what degrees we can remove it in. Uh, and uh, I've run several web compatibility tests to see if it's even possible. Uh, that's mixed. We also reach out to developers to see if they can help us with uh, reducing web incompatibility. So have them rewrite their code so that when we ship the browsers, there isn't this web incompatibility, stuff like that. It is arguably more difficult to, re it's significantly more difficult to remove something than it is to add something. Yeah. I feel like the, the thing I would want to see would never get implemented even as a plugin, which is like, I wish if I was writing like a nested ternary or something, there was some visuals I could see how the conditional flow was tracking. Yeah. Well, you could, you could do something. Just like stop writing nested ternary. I saw Evan write a nested ternary in a Vite demo. Okay. Ew. I mean, uh, that's, uh, so it wouldn't probably fit yeah, in the language. Sure. And this is an interesting part about uh, language design, right? Because, you know, we tend to think of language design as sort of like just the language. But when you talk about language usability, we, in fact, include not only the programming language, but the text editor and the debugger and the entire environment that you use when you're programming. So that's all part of alleviating certain aspects of, language of a language's design that might not be ideal that can help things. So a really great example of a tool that you don't tend to think of as a tool, you tend to think of it as a, you know, core part of a programming language is syntax highlighting. Syntax highlighting is not designed by language designers. It is designed by people who make the tooling. Uh, and of course, it, it has a relationship to the programming language, but this is really a visual tool to help you understand what that's doing. And something like what you just described fits perfectly into that category of um, visual tools, visual aids to help make sense of programming languages. That'd be super awesome. I hope Anthony listens to this episode and gets nerds night, but we'll see. Um, I guess my big question for today, especially given the, the recent news about Log4j, is who, who funds the changes for this stuff or who funds the maintenance of JavaScript or ECMAScript, JavaScript? <laughs> So um, we are part of a standards body called ECMA. And uh, the structure of ECMA is in order to be a member, you can be a corporation that pays in to do it, um, or you can be a nonprofit and then you have a free membership in this organization. Officially, like the, the payment of the development of JavaScript comes from the companies who send their delegates. So for example, I'm a delegate. Mozilla pays my salary to go and work on the programming language and also to go and implement it in the compiler. 
um, and also of all of my colleagues. So Mozilla is covering our, our you know, uh, salaries, and then Google is covering its engineer salaries, et cetera, et cetera. Each company is covering the salaries of the employees that are involved in the specification and development process. But also, a lot of us who work on the committee are volunteering our time a lot of the time. So it is something that takes more time than you'd ever expect to like sit through and like really think through how should this work. Um, so it is a lot of volunteer effort as well. And we also have many fantastic volunteers who simply give their time doing proposal reviews, testing proposals, writing rationales for why or why not something should happen. A lot of people are just donating a ton of time and we couldn't do it without all of those contributors. Is there any feature you wish that you could add to ECMAScript like in your fantasy, but you know in reality you would never be able to add it? Mm. <laughs> mm. Uh, <laughs> this is a tough question. Um, I have various things that I want to add to the language and there are various levels of fantasy. Um I believe that we likely need to introduce some form of typing to the language oh, because uh, that, that, is a, that is a need that the community is making pretty clear. Uh, whether or not that happens remains to be seen. Um, I personally, uh, so my work in the engine centers at the moment on modules. So uh, there is really a fantasy solution for a problem that we have, which is... Um, I don't know if everybody remembers CommonJS, but CommonJS is incompatible with web modules. Mm -hmm. And if you're trying to transfer directly the behavior that uh, exists on CommonJS programs into the module system, you are liable to have it broken by a timing issue or to have to deal with um, certain inconsistencies between those two systems and a big project that i'm working on next year is going to be fixing the module system so that you can have a high performance so the problem is we we eagerly load all modules and common js didn't force you to eagerly load all modules so this is where one of the timing issues comes from and uh, on Mozilla, we use JavaScript to build the browser, and we've got our stuff written in a custom library that implements a module loader. Can't use it with the web because it has this timing issue. And I have a fantasy that we will actually give developers the tool to write their own module loaders so that they don't have to only use the one that's in the browser, but they can write their own. So for example, if you want to delay loading something until the very last moment, you can do that. It's not web compatible. And I don't think that it's going to be possible unless we do some really incredible spec magic. Oh, oh and this is not web compatible in the, in the special way. This is, it breaks an invariant of the web platform. That's why we can't do it. Uh, Evan, are you listening? They said it's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> it's not impossible. It's just, you know, if we do it, then, then we break a lot more than just... Um, websites we will uh we there's a uh, if this means anything to anybody but uh, there's a concept called run to completion which is really important for the web we made the mistake of breaking in the past that's why we have this brand new invariant where you can't shouldn't break that and this would break run to completion so that might that might just be <laughs> like i might that might just be a slew of words but that's the thing that i'm thinking about i'm thinking about this a lot right now <laughs> All right. And with that, Yulia, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter, Twitch, and GitHub, all under the same name, CodeHag. I stream myself writing the compiler, or I did up until this summer. I've been taking a break, extended. Um, so you can also watch the previous videos on Mozilla Hacks. And otherwise, I sometimes tweet. I haven't been very active recently. Okay. All right. Um, time to move on to picks. Alex, would you like to go first? Sure. Um, so this week's pick uh, is a board game that I finally had the opportunity to play. We've had it for a couple of three months, and I finally got the opportunity to play it with a couple of friends and sit down and work through and figure out what all the rules were. First time that you play a game is always the hardest. Um, 
And it was pretty fun. It was very nice. It's a tableau game. It's called Santa Monica. And you are building out your beachfront uh, property and boardwalk. So you get properties, you get pieces of the boardwalk, there's activities, you have visitors showing up. And at the end of the game, like you need your visitors all doing an activity and like all of these sorts of things. Um, And it's and like you start off the game with a VIP. And so, you know, like as the VIP moves, you get points based on like how they want to move around the board and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, It's very fun, very relaxing but it's also you can it's it's nice and strategic in like a very low key kind of way um so yeah that is uh that is my pick this week is santa monica the board game what is a tableau game so a tableau game is where you are collecting a set of things in front of you so wingspan is a tableau game um uh uh race for the galaxy is a tableau game where basically it's like there are typically cards you have cards in front of you and you are collecting cards and putting them in front of you for points at the end of the game and generally speaking it's like you need a certain set of cards in front of you to win the game okay yeah (laughs) i'll pretend i understood that it's very low-key ari and relaxing (laughs) i should play more board games i feel like i would understand more of what you say alex if i did so this is on me uh all right tessa you're up next all right so my first pick is uh, i got a long body pillow i feel like it's slightly concerning because i think it's filled with like micro beads and it it said it came with a removable cover but i recently learned that the zipper that i thought took took off the removable cover was just like there's a pocket in the side in case I want to store things in my pillow pocket, I guess. Um, but I didn't, I didn't expect to like it, but it's surprisingly comfortable. Like I actually feel relaxed sitting down, um, which would be good if I had to play a really stressful board game with people. <laughs> um, so uh, that's my <laughs> first pick. Uh, second pick is a game called Teacup. I just finished it. It's not for me, but I think it could be for some people. You just basically walk around and talk to people in, in like the surrounding villages and stuff, trying to find ingredients for like your tea party. Uh, and the imagery has like a lot of added like green texture and stuff. So it, it looks really crunchy. I don't know how else to describe it. Um, but you like the type of game where you just walk around and talk. Maybe this is for you. Um, the last pick is kind of an anti pick. Uh, I just I just watched this show called Hellbound or Geok, and uh, apparently it was number one on on Netflix. But it's like a slow burn show. I generally don't like slow burn shows, but at the point where like the slow burn is supposed to pay off, they ended the season. So if it seems intriguing to you, maybe wait until they come out in season two, and that's it. This felt like one pick <laughs> and two anti picks. Well, you know, I know that my taste isn't <laughs> universal, so if, if either of those things sound appealing, have at it. I mean, Teacup Teacup is like a, <laughs> is an indie game, and I think it's very charming. It's just I I like action adventure, and so I wanted to do a little bit more. Yeah, fair enough. All right, Yulia, what are your picks? Um, I guess uh, so. I get to do more than one. This is exciting. So I'm going to do that. Um, I'm gonna pick up on the game topic uh and recommend a youtube essayist uh named sophie from mars previously they called themselves uh, curio and they basically are essaying from a um, perspective that's critical from a gender perspective uh critical about the content of games and what they mean and they did a fantastic series about the Witcher, which is Geralt is the ultimate himbo, and it's incredibly entertaining to watch. It's also a fantastic analysis that also goes into the books and the original intentions for Geralt as a character, as a male anti-hero in a very different sense to what you're used to, uh, and uh, his relationship with his daughter and all that kind of stuff. Really fantastic analysis. Very interesting, very entertaining. And they are now doing Resident Evil, which I've also been watching, which has been a lot of fun. Um, And from a programming perspective, since we talked a little bit about 
programming language design and all that. I think, you know, uh, oftentimes programming language design is sort of thought of as difficult, like compilers are hard to implement. That's what people tend to uh, come at it with that expectation. They, are, they, they do get a little tricky, but they're basically giant for loops with case statements. If you like case statements, you'll love compilers. That's all they are. They're basically big case statements. <laughs> um, well, uh, I would recommend two things. Uh, one is a new event that's been going on. There's been two of them. They're called Lang Jams, where people design a programming language in two days, kind of like a game jam. They're being run by JT, uh, uh, who is just fantastic and is just a really nice person. Totally go and check it out. If you've got an interest in language design, you get to find a team. Uh, there's a problem that you solve, like uh, the most recent one was pattern matching, and you can go ahead and design your first language, which can be a really exciting thing, and you only have to do it for two days. Um, also, if you're interested in looking at how different languages solve different problems, I've been watching a really interesting series from Code Report where he has been doing Advent of Code in APL. And he also has a talk, a reject from a Strange Loop or something conference called Functional versus Array Programming. It's a really nice uh, representation of the difference between functional programming and array programming. And if you've got an interest in different um, programming language models, I think you might enjoy it. The himbo pick reminded me I also wanted to pick Jorts. I think Jorts wins the week so if you're not familiar with him i'll link to him okay my pick for this week is related to a pick i had uh, i don't know a few weeks ago when i picked the golden girls api so this time i'm just gonna pick the golden girls because i have recently been re-watching it i have two episodes left in the series and even though i've watched them all before i'm still sad that it's ending um but you can check it out on Hulu. I will say a lot of it aged fairly well. Some of it did not age well at all. And there are moments that are definitely super cringy in today's world. But it is also sort of nice to see, you know, how far we've come in 30 years. Um, but yeah, so it, it's a good watch when you don't want to think about anything really. Um, it's a good background show to have on and I'm definitely a Dorothy. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> um, and with that, that is all for this week's episode. If you aren't following us on Twitter, please do. We are at Enjoy the Viewcast. Or if you want to see our cats, though I have been slacking on adding pictures of my cat recently, you can also find us at Enjoy the View Cats. Um, if you haven't already subscribed to the show, please do. And if you have time, and you want to leave us a positive review, it helps other people find the podcast. Um, and remember to share and tell all of your friends about how much you love our show. And if you do love our show, please consider um, supporting us on, I can never, is it Kofi? Kofi. <laughs> um, uh, you can find us at Kofi. Uh, Co hyphen. Oh my god. It's okay. Oscar did not even say Kofi correctly last episode. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's ko hyphen fi.com slash enjoy the view. Anything that you donate there just goes to production costs so that we're not having to pay out of pocket. So, if you want to help us keep going, please consider helping. Thanks for listening. And until next time, enjoy the view. Bye.